So if you have a Bible with you this morning, I would encourage you to open that up to Luke chapter 22 uh, in the Black Pew Bibles. Uh, We're going to be on page 882. Uh, So over the last few weeks, uh, Jesus has been in Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. This is the high point of the religious calendar for them. And all through All through the days and the week leading up to Passover, Jesus has been preaching and teaching in the temple. He's been calling the people to repent, and specifically the religious leaders. He's been calling them out. He's been calling them to repentance because they had taken their positions of power, of authority, of privilege, and of respect, things that they had been given by God, and they had used them Not in the way that they were supposed to. They were supposed to use them to serve and to build up and to lead the people. But instead, they used them to serve and to build up their own interests. They used what God had entrusted to them for their good rather than for the good of the people. And Jesus told them essentially that if they were going to do this, if they were going to abuse and misuse the things that God had entrusted to them, then God was going to take those things away from them. Their city, their temple, their wealth, their power, their position, even their lives, all gone. And this teaching was a little unpopular with the religious leaders, for reasons that you can probably imagine pretty easily. And they started to look for a way to arrest and to kill Jesus, but they needed to do it secretly, because the people who were there in Jerusalem for the Passover were looking at Jesus as a prophet. And so Judas, one of Jesus' disciples, sought out these religious leaders and agreed to betray Jesus for money. But as they sat down to celebrate the Passover together, Jesus gave them a way to remember him. He said that when they took bread together to remember his broken body, and when they took the cup of wine together, they were to do that to remember his blood, that had been poured out for the forgiveness of their sins. He was telling them now, at at this point in the story, in knowledge of two things. He knew two things. He knew that he was going to die the next day, nailed to a Roman cross. And he knew that the man who was going to betray him was sitting there at the table with him. So that's the setting. That's the setting for our passage this morning. Jesus in the upper room with his disciples, saying that he is preparing to die for his people in full knowledge that the one who would be instrumental in his death was sitting right there with them. So let's read this morning in uh, Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. 
So there's an argument that starts among the disciples. An argument about which one of them is the most important. Obviously, Jesus is, is the most important person in the room. But who's, who's the most important disciple? Who's the second in command? Uh, now, this was not a new discussion for them. Uh, you got 12 generally relatively young guys. Um, there's going to be some dispute over the pecking order, right? I mean, that's, that's just how it works in these sorts of situations. So we look back uh, into like Luke 9, uh, where Luke says that the exact same thing happened once before. An argument arose among them as to which one was the greatest. But Jesus, that time, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. So that's the pattern that he set last time. That's the shape of the answer that he gave. It's this upside down kingdom, right? Where the one who humbles himself will be exalted, but the one who exalts himself will be humbled. The first will be last. If you want to live, then you must die. But if you seek to live, then you will die. The greatest is the least, and the least is the greatest. And so Jesus here in this passage is, is reiterating to his disciples this teaching. Because they, like we, don't always get it the first time around. Amen? <laughs> uh, and so he's telling that, them that here. But with a little bit of um, expansion. He's expanding on this idea a little bit. Because the way that the kingdom works and the way that the world works are two entirely different things. They're two entirely different systems. And in a lot of ways, they are complete opposites of one another. So in the world, the greatest is the greatest and the least is the least. And the expectation is that the greatest, the rulers, those who have power and authority and wealth, what are they going to do with it? They're going to use it for their own benefit. Now, sure, Jesus says... You might call them benefactors, right? That, that's kind of the way that they would have talked about the, the rich and the powerful, is they would have said, oh yes, they are, they are our benefactors, right? Bill Gates, he's, he's, he's my benefactor. But that's not actually how it works, right? Because really what they are doing with their wealth is they are using it for themselves. And Jesus says here, the kings of the Gentiles work that way the non-Jews. But this is the exact same thing, this is the exact sort of charge that he has been leveling against the Jewish leaders as well over the last week. They had been entrusted with positions of authority, and instead of using their position as shepherds of the people for the good of the sheep, they used their positions for their own benefit and for their own advancement, because that is the way of the world. The power, the resources, the positions, the possessions, the gifts that I have, I get to use for my good in the way that I see is best. Is anybody confused by that? Does, you've all seen that, right? Every single one of us has seen that. Sometimes up close. The people who use, who talk about, who flaunt their wealth, their power, their position, those people who are constantly seeking to expand their empire, to expand their kingdom, to become more visible, to become more important. 
Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're accumulating wealth. They might give a lot of it away. But you've seen those people that even when they give, there's got to be publicity. There's got to be recognition. The news has got to be there. It's got to be in the paper. I've got to have my name on the building. There's got to be recognition and publicity associated with that. But this is not just a problem among the super wealthy. This is an issue that extends to every single one of us. Maybe you've heard somebody say, well, I've worked hard for this. I'm not going to give my hard-earned money to... I deserve, I've earned, I should get. Those phrases all reveal a way of thinking that is mired in the world's view. Because in the world, the greater are always served by the lesser. The people who have money are always served by those who don't. The people who have strength, who have power, they are always served by the people who don't. That's the way that the world works. But Jesus says that in his kingdom, it's different. It's upside down. He says in verse 26, but not so with you. That's how the world works. That's not how my kingdom works. And that, that's not how you, as kingdom citizens, should work. Rather, he says, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. So in the world, the greater are served by the lesser, but in the kingdom, the greatest are those who serve the least. Who humble themselves. Who serve. Who build up. And Jesus is, in this passage here, the example of this. He says, who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? Who, who is the greater? The person who is sitting at the table eating the meal or the one who is serving them? Obviously, he says, it's the one who, who reclines at table. It's the master who is being served by his servants. But is that the pattern that we've seen in Jesus' life? But, he says, I am among you as the one who serves. And so again, in the world, the one who serves is the lesser, and the one who is served is the greater. But that is not how Jesus is doing it. He has come as a servant. It says in Mark 10 that even as the Son, Jesus said, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. So if Jesus is who he holds himself out to be, if Jesus is the Son of God, the root and the branch of David, the Savior of the world, the serpent crusher who has come to set us free, then he is the single greatest person who could ever possibly live. He is worthy to receive 
all of the power and all of the honor and all of the glory that this world can offer. He is the one whom all of creation should be serving. And what is it that he's doing? He is serving. He is the greatest and he serves. And it's actually at this point in the narrative, in the story, uh, that in John's gospel, we get that story of Jesus washing his disciples' feet. It says in John 13 that Jesus rose from supper, and he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And a few verses later, he says, it says, When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If then I... Your Lord and teacher have washed your feet. You also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. So you have in this room the king of all creation. And he has come, he says, to serve. And then he demonstrates that service by taking the lowest the dirtiest, the smelliest job upon himself. He washes his disciples' feet. He is the greatest. And he has come to serve. But that's only a part of what demonstrates his love and his service for his disciples. Because just the next day, he knew that he would undergo something even lower than washing his disciples' feet. He would be beaten, he would be whipped, and he would be crucified, dying for the sins of his disciples, dying for your sins and for mine. And that is the ultimate demonstration and fulfillment of what it is that Jesus is talking about here. That is what Paul is writing about in Romans 5 when he says that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So whether it is dirty feet, whether it is a dirty soul, Christ has come. The king of the universe has come to wash us clean of all of that uncleanness, to wash us clean of that filth. And he did that by taking the form of a servant. But the thing about the kingdom... is that this humiliation, this serving, does not last forever. Christ died for sinners, but did he stay dead? Christ died for sinners, but he did not stay dead. The Father raised him in the power of the Spirit to a new life, to a glorified life. And he sits now in power at the right hand of God. And there is coming a day when the one who was the least, the one who was lowest, 
the one who was the servant of all will be exalted over all the earth and every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. That's what he's talking about there in verse 28 where he says, you are those who have stayed with me in my trials and I assign to you as my father assigned to me a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. So Jesus is telling his disciples here that if you are willing to share in my servanthood, if you are willing to follow me, then we will also share in his glory and in his power. If we will share in his serving, then we will share at his table. This is, again, what Paul wrote about in Romans 8. That we are children and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So Jesus came and he suffered. He came and he served. But that suffering and that service was the prelude to glory. Because today he sits enthroned in power and glory for all eternity. He is getting the power and the glory that he deserved, but that he laid aside. And if we will share in his suffering, if we will share in his service, if we will follow him, if we are one with him, then we will share in his glory as well. And so he, call, he tells his disciples and he calls his people to use whatever power, whatever authority, whatever strength they have been given, not to bring honor and glory to themselves, but rather to use what it is that they have been entrusted with to serve and to love the way that he loved and he served. Now, we have a slightly different context, right? We don't have kings or, or rulers of the same type that they did before. But instead, we've rewritten what power looks like. We've kind of redefined it a little bit. We've taken the concept of power over people, the ability to dictate what somebody else was going to do, the ability to tell them what it was that they were going to do, and we've broken it up into little tiny pieces. We've broken it up into little tiny pieces that we call money. Money is little pieces of power that when we use it, we are asserting power over other people. Because if I were to walk in to a random establishment and say, give me four coffees and a dozen donuts. Nobody's going to do that. But if I walk in and say, give me four coffees and a dozen donuts at an appropriate establishment, of course, what are they going to do? They're going to give it to me. This is how I exercise power over people around me. Mike, can I have your house and all your stuff? <laughs> That's not the answer I was hoping for. <laughs> okay, let's pretend that Mike said no. He needs a place to live, right? But if I show up 
I give him enough of these. Absolutely. Anybody would do that. that. And so this is our proxy for power. This is power broken up into little tiny chunks. And most of what we do with our money, with our power, is we make things easy for ourselves. We reshape the world in the way that we want it to look. The exchange of money for goods or services, the exchange of power for our benefit, uh, is consumption. And that is one of the defining characteristics of the world that we live in. We are engaged in a constant, unending struggle to get what we want, to get what we think we need, to get to make our lives easier, better, more comfortable, and we believe, we believe that consumption is king. We've rewritten our society in such a way that the customer is always right. BK, have it your way. We think that with enough power, with enough money, we can get and we can have whatever it is that we want. And we assume, rightly so in that framework, that because we are consuming something, because we're acquiring something, we have power over it. We're, we've exercised power to be able to get it. And if we've exercised power to be able to get what we want, then that must mean that I'm the greatest. Or at least I am greater than somebody else who didn't have the power to get what I got. When we approach life from this sort of consumeristic mindset, then what we are doing is we are living an ongoing running argument that is exactly the same argument that, that the disciples had here. When we're running around trying to get money to exercise power over the world around us, that's what we're doing. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. You've got to do what I tell you to do because I've got all these little scraps of power in my pocket. And if you do what I tell you to do, then you'll have some little scraps of power in your pocket that you can use to exercise power over other people. And if you don't do what I say, then you won't get that power. You won't have that power. Now, I think that that idea of consumerism is broader than just money, but it's got its roots in the same place. The consumeristic mindset says that I'm the most important. I'm the greatest. I'm always right. And so I should get what I want. And if I don't, if I can't, then I'll go and I'll get what I want from someone else. Another store, another person, another place. If I'm not treated with the respect and the honor that all of my power, that all my little pieces of power entitles me to, then I'll go somewhere else where they will show me the respect and the honor that I deserve. And Jesus is clearly telling his disciples here that that isn't how it works in his kingdom. The currency of his kingdom isn't power. It isn't greatness. It isn't wealth. But the currency of his kingdom is a love. 
It is a love that reveals itself in self-sacrificial service. He has given himself for our good. He has given himself so that he could welcome us home. We were dead in our sins, but through his death in our place, we have been forgiven. We have been washed clean. We haven't just been tolerated, but we have been embraced as beloved sons and daughters of our heavenly father because Christ has come to love and to serve. He has come to work for our good. And that has been accomplished. That has been done for us by Jesus Christ giving himself in love for us and for our salvation. And in his death on the cross, you have the most profound and the most painful act of service that all the powers of the world could possibly conceive. But that is why he came. That is what he went to willingly, out of love. And so if we are going to follow after Jesus, then we must seek to serve and not to be served. It says in Philippians 2, to do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If we are going to follow after Jesus, then your interests, the things that you care about, no longer get to define and shape your life. You, in following Jesus, are committing yourself to a lifetime of serving other people, of doing not just what is best for you, but what is best for them. But that requires that we wholeheartedly reject that consumeristic mindset that pervades our society. If we're going to be a part of the kingdom, if we are going to follow Jesus, then we must reject that idea that I am number one, that I am most important. And so in your families, in how you treat your spouses, Are you seeking what is good for you? Or are you seeking what is good for them? Are you concerned about what is fair? Or are you seeking to love and to serve and to pour yourself out the way that Christ poured himself out for you? At your work, are you doing what is good and best and easiest for you? Or are you you loving and serving your boss, your coworkers, your subordinates? Are you working for their good, seeking their good in your vocation? In your participation in the church, in the body of Christ, Are you seeking what is best for you? Or are you seeking what is best for the brothers and sisters around you? Because if we, if our life together as a church is reflective of what Jesus is saying here, then our life together is not about what we come away with, 
but rather it's about what you have brought and left behind in the hands of somebody else. Now, yes, yes, this opens us up to being taken advantage of. It opens us up to giving and giving and giving and getting nothing in return, having nothing to show for it. And I think that's the point. I think that's the point. Because what did we bring to Christ that was of value? What did he get from us that he didn't already have, that wasn't already his? Nothing. Nothing at all. But he loved us anyway. And he gave himself for us. And so that is the way that we must be approaching the people around us. And the good news is that that means that any single one of us can be great in the kingdom of heaven. You might have nothing to offer in the terms of the world. You might bring nothing to the table. You may have no power. You may have no money. You may have nothing. You may be a liability in the eyes of the world. But if what Jesus is saying here is true, you can achieve greatness in the kingdom of God by giving up what you do have, by giving what you have in service to one another. Anybody ever get a card from Joyce? Anybody ever get a phone call? from a friend. Hey, how you doing? You ever walk in someplace and somebody comes, maybe not quite running, but walking with purpose over to say, hey, how you doing? It's, it's really good to see you. How much do those things cost? If you're short on stamps and paper, I'll give you stamps and paper. But those things don't cost anything. We have the opportunity to be great in the kingdom of heaven, but it requires that we die daily to ourselves. What about just simply <clears throat> listening to somebody? How much does it cost to listen? And not just, not just sit there while they talk, but actually listen to somebody and hear what it is that they are trying to tell you. To put their life as being more important than yours. In a lot of ways, that costs nothing. That takes nothing. Any, any one of us is capable of doing that. Any single one of us is capable of achieving greatness in the kingdom of God. But one of the things that we do need to remember is that our motivation in what we do matters. So going back to the, the looking at our work, right? if we do what our boss requires of us because we're 
really trying to make them think that we're a really good worker or we're angling for a promotion or a raise or something. What's our motivation? Our motivation in those scenarios is entirely self-centered. But if I am working, but if I am working, if I am serving them the way that Christ has served me, then that's a different matter. We can't be self-serving. We cannot be seeking our own good, but we must be seeking the good of others. And that includes uh, even, Jesus says, recognition. He says in Matthew 6, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. And so any sort of scenario where there's a quid pro quo, right? I give you something, you give me something back in return. I give you money, you give me thanks. I give you time, you give me time somewhere later on down the road. I help you move your couch and then you help me move my couch. That's not what we're talking about here. But rather what Jesus is talking about here is moving that couch without any expectation that they're ever going to help you with anything at all. It's giving without any expectation that you are going to receive thanks or recognition for that. It is loving. It is loving without expectation of ever receiving anything in return. Now, this question of power and how we use it has always been an important question, a key question. And Jesus says that if we are going to follow him, if we are going to be his people, then we must use our power to serve and to love those around us. Because that is what he has done for you. We have the privilege and the responsibility and the honor of living that out, of being living, breathing, walking examples of that love. The world serves the greatest, but the greatest serves in the kingdom. And so if you are a follower of Jesus, if you believe that Jesus has saved you from your sin, then your life and the way that you deal with the people around you should be a living example, a parable of that love. People should look at the way that you love and serve your family. And by seeing the way that you love and serve your family, they should understand Jesus better. They should look at the way that you love and you serve the people around you in your job, and they should understand Jesus better. They should look at the way that we love and serve one another in the church without condition, without expectation. And they should be able to look at that love and they should understand God's love better for having seen it. And what he's doing in calling us to live this way, to walk this way, is he is calling us to die to ourselves. And that's what this is. That's what this lifestyle is that he's calling us to. It's a, it's a daily dying to ourselves. Dying to what I want. Dying to what I think is best. Dying to what seems right to me. 
But did Jesus stay dead? Jesus died. Did he remain dead? He rose again on the third day. And in our baptism, what we are doing is we are saying that we believe with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength that if we die with him, if we follow after him, if we die to ourselves the way that he died to himself, then like he lived once more, we will live once more as well. So yes, yes, it feels like dying to live this way. Yes, it feels like death to follow after Jesus. But he says, but he says to those who are willing to follow after him that we will eat and we will drink at his table in his kingdom and all of the power and the authority that we refuse to exercise for our own good will be ours in that kingdom. So will you? Will you lay aside your self-interest? Will you lay aside what is good and easy, what is comfortable for you, to love and to serve the way that Christ loved and served? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, to look at what, what you are calling us to in this passage. To look at this life devoted to the love and to the service of the people around us. It, it rubs us the wrong way. It chafes, it hurts, it pokes and prods in places that we don't want to be poked and prodded. But Lord, we recognize that that is the sinfulness of our flesh at work. And Lord, what is being poked and prodded there, what is being, what is being cut, what is being ground down there in our hearts and in our souls are the parts of us that need to be put to death. Those are the parts of us that don't look like Jesus. Those are the parts of us that don't reflect your love, your power, your glory. And so, Lord, I pray that you, would, that you would continue to be at work in our hearts and our souls, Lord. That you would tear away the ways and the places and the circumstances that, that we are tempted to seek and to protect our own interests the ways that we are tempted to use the power, to use the might that you have given us, to use the time that you have given us for our own glory, for our comfort, for our good. Lord, we pray that you would tear those places down, that you would rip them away, that we might be faithful Parables, Lord, that we might be faithful pictures of what Christ's love looks like. Because, Lord, that's, that is what we want. We want to be able to tell and to show and to live out in the world your love. We want people 
to look at the way that we love and serve and to understand your love for them better because of it. So Lord, I pray, Lord, I pray that you would guard our hearts, that you would empower us to live that sort of love and to be faithful representations of it out into the world around us in the days and in the weeks to come and every day until Jesus comes again. We pray all of these things today in his name. Amen. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Go in peace.